God, we love you so much. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus, Lord, that in him, Lord, we are whole. We have life. We have hope. We have peace. We have joy. Now, not just to come. Lord, it is now our, our, because of the promise fulfilled in him. Because we do not have to overcome on our own. We are free. We are made alive with Christ. So now as we come to your word to, to look at Paul's letter to the Romans, Lord, I pray that we would uh, just grow in our hunger for you, grow in our awe of your love and mercy, and Lord, be a people of grace, be a people of, of the work of Christ who have experienced it and want to pass it on. So God, we love you. We give you this time. Speak through me, in spite of me, whatever it takes. Take my words, catch them aflame with your Holy Spirit, and transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 1. We will be referencing some scripture throughout. Um, and if it's hard for you to keep up, the text will be on the screen as well. Also, we do use uh, events in the YouVersion Bible app. So if you have that, uh, open it up, go to more, uh, click events, will pop up because of GPS. It's got all the passages that I referenced today, as well as quotes and, and a place for you to take notes and some announcements as well. So it's a great resource too. Um, if you need a Bible, there's one near you on the floor, and if you don't have one at all, please take that with you. That's our gift to you. Okay, so Romans. Why Romans? And it's really cool. We just had our third year anniversary. We went through last Sunday. Didn't mention it at all. That was our third year anniversary as a church, like crazy. So yeah, I know. Amazing. Praise God. Yes, we are applauding his faithfulness, so don't be shy, because he is the one who sustains us by his grace alone. But Romans, what a timely book to kick off kind of a, it, it, this, this moment, this inaugural moment, because Romans is, is probably, I mean, maybe this is an opinion, maybe it's fact, but the greatest book at laying out the whole whole message of the Bible. What is the whole message? It is the message of God's redemptive work in all of history in Christ. So like I said, we'll be in Romans for a while, so hopefully this will set us up well. Maybe we'll need to refer back to it every now and then. We'll do that by your own accord through you listening to the recording. Um, but Romans is intensely theological. If you've ever read it in full, I mean, the concepts, you're just like, oh, oh my gosh, like I can't, it just, because it was crazy is that this letter was meant to be read in one sitting, and I just, I can't imagine trying to ingest it fully all in one setting, because as I read it in full, I'm constantly just, just hit with like, I mean, that, that's huge. Okay, i got to unpack that. And what's phenomenal is it just is as intensely theological, it's also intensely personal. First off, just in how Paul wrote it, because it's almost like he's in your head. It's almost like he knows that you get to this moment of just being overwhelmed or this question that comes into mind because a concept presented. And Paul's like, so you may ask this. And then he gives you an answer. And then, you, and then another answer comes up, and he's like, I'm in your head. And he's like, so then you ask this. And he keeps doing that over and over again. So it's intensely theological, but it's intensely personal. For those of you in here that, that have acknowledged Christ as Savior, how many of you did Romans play a pivotal role in your journey to faith in Christ? Raise them high so we can see. I mean, again, that's personal. That's not theological. A life transformed, a life liberated is personal. It does a very personal work. So yes, it presents these lofty doctrinal theological themes and concepts, but yet at the end of the day, it is about Christ's personal work in you. So Paul facilitates this inner monologue, and I love it. Romans will explode our tendency to only seek to learn how to look 
like a Christian, to kind of just instill dogma, to instill methodology. It'll explode that, that tendency that we have, kind of like what Matt was talking about in his testimony, and instead kind of instill in us and awaken in us a desire for the glorious opportunity we have to actually know God as his children, to, to know God as those he calls his workmanship, to know God as those who have been redeemed. So hang on. It's exciting. So it, it calls us away from legalism, the futile effort to overcome by your efforts. Legalism goes off the rails really quick. Why do you say that? Because it's nice at the beginning, because it's containable, because you feel like you're doing it with your hands, and you're like, I'm doing a pretty good job. But inevitably, inevitably, 100%, every single person that, that goes the route of attaining their own way through their own works of redemption and, and peace will, will come to this moment. It just 100% of the time when you just, it hits you like a ton of bricks. You just hit the wall that what you do will never be enough. It will never be enough just first off experientially where we can all understand to bring you peace, to bring you meaning. And then as we start to understand the economy of God, the way that he works, what is right, what is wrong, that it will never overcome our need because of our sin. We'll use the term the gospel a lot. And just when we say the gospel, we're talking about the gospel is the good news of the work accomplished in Jesus. So when we say gospel, that's what we're talking about. If you missed it, back earlier in the summer on July 16th, we did this uh, sermon, kind of an overview of the kingdom gospel contrasted with kind of some typical brands of gospel that, are, that have bits of truth but are incomplete. I would encourage you this week to go back. You can go on our website or our app or our podcast, or go to the podcast and look for the sermon from July 16th called The Kingdom Gospel and give that a listen. Um, it does a great job of kind of setting up what the, the gospel, the full gospel of Jesus is. Um, our goal today and our goal throughout studying Romans, and especially today, is not that we would kind of get excited about Romans, not that we would be in awe of the, the literary design or the intellectual, you know, kind of layout of, of Romans or even just the, the truths in it, but instead that we would be in awe of the work of Jesus. That's the point. That's Paul's intent of Romans. So that's our prayer for today. So the big idea of Romans is this. Righteousness from God comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ and transforms believers. Righteousness from God comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ and transforms believers. That's just the big idea for Romans, and that's not original. Uh, didn't, didn't come up with that phrasing. That's really just coming from Romans 1, 16, through 17, 16 and 17. This is really the theme passage, the theme verses for all of Romans. So let's read that together real quick. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, the work of Jesus, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
This is the point of the rest of the letter. Our righteousness, our right standing, our salvation, our redemption is achieved in Christ. And then we see that it's not just for the Jew, which was the thought of the time. Paul is writing to a church. If you don't know, all of the Jews were expelled from Rome for about five years. There was a Christian church, a Christ church already established. And when they left, they, they were gone for five years. When they came back in, all of a sudden there was this church that didn't look very Jewish anymore. And so then they enter back in, and now they're trying to kind of figure out life together of what values more, like the, 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 the laws of, of, of the Jewish tradition and, and what, was, what got them there, or this Gentile kind of culture that, that came into Christ. And so we're, he's, he's writing to overcome and to bring unity in Christ. And so we see he opens it up. He says, because at one point before Jesus, the Jews thought that salvation's were, salvation was for the Jews alone. But what we see here, for the Jew first and also to the Greek, so he opens it up to the Gentiles. And if you're wondering who that is, there are the Jews. And then if you're, is anyone here from Jewish descent? We celebrate it. If you are, anyone? Okay, so the, if you, anyone here from Gentile descent? That means if you're not Jewish. <laughs> Okay, so that's if, if no one raised their hand for Jewish, that means everyone is of Gentile descent. Okay, because that's pretty much the two categories. It was either Jew or everything else. And so Paul is bringing this all-inclusive work of Christ and redemption that it's not just for a national identity, but it's for all of mankind. So it's for the Jew first, also for the Gentile. So it's opened it up for, so it's for all who believe, not just those who work. The Jews had the inside track because they had the law that showed them how to work for redemption. Christ came and overcame the law and extended redemption to all people. Praise God for that because without that, every one of us that raised our hand would be outside of the promise. So let's follow the major thought movements Paul takes us through to teach this reality that righteousness is by faith alone in Jesus Christ and transforms believers. So as I said, we're going to be referencing a bunch of key verses. So if it's hard to keep up flipping, you can just uh, go to the screens. But Paul starts with a hard truth. He starts with the hard truth. If righteousness from God comes from faith alone in Jesus Christ, then it doesn't come by our works. That's where Paul starts. Paul establishes the reality of sin and that we are sinners. And in doing that, he eradicates this false hope of self-attained and maintained righteousness. And again, to use that word righteousness, we're talking about the right standing before God, who is holy, sovereign, creator, ruler of all things, determiner of truth and right and wrong. So he's saying that self-righteousness is false. We see that in this first section of kind of chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. He starts off with condemning the, the pagan and Gentile rituals and all other world religions. Then, he, then Paul, who, by the way, was the Pharisee of all Pharisees before his life got turned upside down when he encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he, he was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He was, he was respected. He was lauded. He was trained by one of the best, Gamaliel. He was, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. So for Paul to then, because you can imagine if he's speaking to the Jews and he's saying, and he's, he's saying like the, the pagan rituals and the traditions and the philosophies don't lead anywhere. You imagine they're shaking their head. That's right. They got to get right. They got to get right back with what the, what the law says. And then Paul's like, but then he turns his sights on the Jews as well. Romans 3, 9 through 12 says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, 
are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then skipping a few verses that continue kind of in that vein, he, he wraps it up in verse 19 and 20. says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that they so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law is important because it reveals our need for sin, but it does not overcome the reality of sin in our life. So what is Paul saying? So he's saying in a legal sense, as we stand before a judge and we have to be deemed guilty or not guilty, our legal standing in reference to our works that we are held accountable for, we have all come up drastically short. We are all guilty. See, we often measure ourselves by how we measure up, by how we compare. And we look at the person next to us and we say, well, I'm better than that person. So, you know, or this group's better than that group or whatever. And, and, and again, as we already said earlier today, the measure is Jesus. The measure is the holiness of God. And that's what Paul is calling us to. So the reality is, is that we have all fallen short of God's holy and righteous standard. So why does Paul start here? Why does he start here? This is the beginning of his letter. He wants to make sure that we have no false notions about who we are and what our need is in our sin. Sin is a destructive force. It, it affects our experiences presently. And, and, and the effects of sin are coming to full fruition in, in the end of our days when it's left unmet by grace. So it does bring current destruction, but it's also being ultimate destruction, bringing ultimate destruction. You know, thinking about kind of the context of our, of our life right now, what's happening in the world, so many disasters, storms and earthquakes. And the storms, we, we've heard so many stories today, I mean, up to today, kind of in these current storms of, of people knowing that the storm is coming. It's hard to know an earthquake is coming. People knowing storms are coming, told to get out of there, and deciding to wait it out. And they wait, not, you know, some, some wait kind of that arrogant way of just like, I'm going to overcome, but some wait thinking they still have time. And they wait, and they think, I'll have time to escape when I see that it's too bad. And all of a sudden, before they realize it, the deluge comes upon them. The waters come upon them, and all of a sudden, they can't escape. And those people either end up having to be rescued by someone else or they meet uh, a far worse ultimate fate. This is sin. Sin is often not a blatant call to deny the goodness of God. It more often lulls you to an action and a feeling of secure, false security that you'll be able to overcome what is to come on your own. Or that you still have time. And it just lulls you to sleep. Paul knows this and wants you to wake up. Wants us to wake up. Wants the people in the church of Rome to wake up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency that abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls one back from the path of sin. Should be back. So out of love, Paul tells us that no one is righteous. No, not one. Thank you, Paul. So here's the beautiful thing. 
The letter goes on. It didn't end there. We're not going to stop there today. That would be mean. So Paul keeps going. He, Paul had just said that no one, can be, no one can become righteous by their own works, as he said in verse 20. But verse 21, what do you see? You see this, this transitional word. It's this word B-U-T. It's this but. It's this word that sets up a contrast. Man, praise God for that. Um, what, so what does he say? Romans 3, 21 through 24, he says, But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I kind of just want to read that again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Paul showed us that our works will never, ever overcome our sin debt, but that God, in his infinite love, in his infinite mercy, in his infinite grace, gave us a way in Jesus Christ, his son, for our sin to be defeated and for us to be liberated and redeemed. So let's make a few quick observations about these few verses. Um, it's not a new salvation it's not that the old salvation was inadequate. It's the same one as the Old Testament. Do you notice that it said there in verse 21, it says, uh, all, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the same reality that the, the, the salvation, righteousness comes from God alone and is by faith. It's for all the Jew and the Gentile, once again, for all who believe. All are justified who believe. Salvation is for all who believe. So if we say who believe, I think it's important to really quickly for now in broad strokes, we'll dig into this when we get to this text, but we have to ask, believe what? If it's so important, what's the object of our belief? What's the focus? The text gives us our answer. This salvation is offered to all who come to know Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, we see that this word propitiation there. It says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified in his grace. We see this word uh, propitiation, the atonement um, for us. Verse 25 says this, whom, whom God, speaking of Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So what is propitiation? It's the atonement. What is the atonement, right? We'll get there. So let, let me just answer it. The atonement is his substitutionary work. Jesus is our substitute that satisfied the righteous requirement and took on our wrath. Maybe you've heard this term, maybe not, the great exchange. It is the fact that Jesus took on our sin, our guilt, and gave us his righteousness. So it's not, again, not that God says, just I'm going to sweep your sins, your offense under the rug and just say you're not guilty. He is, because of Jesus, you are as if you were never guilty. Your guilt was put on Christ. He took the wrath. His righteousness, his right standing was given to you. 
That is what we are called to believe. The great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. So it has nothing to do with us being good. It has everything to do with Jesus being good. This allows a holy God to love us sinners as if we are sinless. You've heard it in this room before. If you've been here in the times that it's been said, but uh, a, righteous, a good judge, a, a, a good judge always acquits the innocent and condemns the guilty. A good judge never acquits the guilty and condemns the innocent. This is the only way that God can be just. The only way that he can be a good judge is if Jesus took on our, our sin and wrath and gave us his righteousness and standing. Okay, beautiful. So chapter 4, we're going to kind of speed up as we get to the rest of these 11 chapters. Chapter 4 goes on to defend these statements. It uses the example of Abraham and David. This is Paul being sensitive to his audience, speaking to the Jews in language they understand. Abraham, the father of their faith. David, their hero, their king. Their, he, he speaks to them. He says, these guys that you hold up as heroes, they believe this same reality, that righteousness is in Christ alone, not your works. My faith in Christ. Chapter 4 is a defense of the Jewish objections. Again, it's like Paul's in our heads. He's in their heads. And chapter 5 lays out logical conclusions of a salvation by grace through faith alone. What are some of these conclusions that we see? First, we see that there is real peace that peace that surpasses understanding because our security is not ours to attain or maintain, but is done in Christ. There is hope, there is joy, and in the end, there is security. Now, again, this is to whet your appetite. We're going to work all through this in full. But in the end, there is security. So if, if our righteousness, if our redemption is based on Jesus, God won't take it away when we don't perform. You heard both Matt and Travis talk about their need for grace. Like, hey, as we step in to this opportunity and responsibility to lead, we're not always going to measure up. But praise God, because of Jesus, when we don't perform, we are still righteous. And we get to be repentant, we get to be confessional, and we get to be restored, and our standing never changes before God. This brings us to the reality of the gospel of grace and the natural question then. And I, and I say that if you've never asked this question, I submit that you possibly have never fully understood grace. But this question, well, why do I have to live to a standard at all then? If grace is so covering, so all-encompassing, why, why, why try to live to any standard? Why not just let grace be grace and me not have to waste my energy? Paul anticipated that question. And as we move into chapter 6, he answers that question. So let's think about this big idea again, right? Righteousness from God comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ and transforms believers. That transforming work is what we're talking about now. So we are in Christ. We've confessed. We believe we're in Christ. And now we're, and now we're thinking about the work of grace. And we said it, and it transforms believers. We're talking about sanctification, the work, the process of being made more like him over time. Romans 6, 1 through 4 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So our, our, our salvation in Christ 
is not just about eternity. It's not just about heaven. It's about new life. It's about new life in Christ. It's about following Jesus. Baptism, yes, is a symbol of, of, of the work of Christ in our lives, but it's also a statement saying that I totally identify with. I, I totally identify with all of the promises and commands of, of the work of Christ. So to be baptized is to say I identify with the laying down of my life as Jesus laid down his life. So I'm laying down all of my old ways and I'm taking on new life as I am raised up as Jesus was raised up into new life. We are raised up. So we identify with this old self being dead and gone, praise God, and a new self being alive in Christ and to Christ. So this transforming of believers is one that is acted upon us and one that we act in as we surrender daily, as we take on the laying down in the, in the, in the, in the holiness and the life of Christ. It is to live that life more and more every day that Jesus would live if he had your life. How would Jesus teach as if, he, if he was a teacher at your school? How would he consult if he was a consultant at your firm? How would he argue cases if he was a lawyer? How would he, how would he go and do plumbing if he was a plumber? How would, I mean, again, that is the idea. How do we day by day increase in the likeness of Christ to where our life looks more like the life Jesus would live if he had your life? Unpack that. Untwist that. That's just wonderful. So you see, it's not to, our life is not one where we are trying to earn favor, but it is one that we are offering because of the favor shown to us in Christ by God the Father. God is not against effort. He, is, he compels us to effort. He compels us to work. Even, even in paradise, before the fall in creation, Adam, was given, Adam and Eve were given work. He's not against effort. He's against earning. Because when we work to earn, we diminish the work of Christ. We're safe, we're secure because we have received the Holy Spirit. I jumped ahead just for a sec, so let me summarize 6 and 7 real quick. Um, that's why we don't use grace to go on sinning, because our desires have changed as we've been given new life. So that's chapter 6. Chapter 7 simply illustrates chapter 6. So chapter 8. Chapter 8 says that those that are freed from the law, which is self-righteousness, are united with Christ and therefore perfectly safe. This is a reiteration of chapter 5, really, as we look at it. We're safe because we've received the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we're safe because we've been given the spirit He's in us. He's, he, he, he seals us in. We're also safe because we're called sons and daughters of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's, that's, a, that's, a, a, that's a term of affection. It's like Daddy God, Abba, Father. You're not let into heaven to serve the whim of a king. As, as something like a butler 
or just a house servant. You are led into heaven because you've been given the same standing as the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we're not made deity, but we are again given that standing. We are made co-heirs with Christ. The riches of grace are for us forever. We are safe even in the midst of all the present struggle. Why? Because, Because our eternal God will never abandon us. Let's look at the final few verses of chapter 8, 35 through 39. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just a side note, the love and promise and grace of God does not promise us an easy life. We see that struggle will always be present. We live in a world marred, broken, fallen because of sin. That's the reality. And God in His infinite love and mercy is working to restore all things. We talked about it last week. We know we are and we see creation groaning for its restoration. That's what we see. When we ask, well, why would God do this? God is working to restore So we are safe even in the midst of our present struggle, which will always be present. So, so far, we've seen that we're hopeless sinners, but God's salvation and righteousness comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is for all who believe. God's grace is shown in that it is not our goodness, but rather the goodness of Jesus that gives us right standing before Him. This goodness and grace compels us to live lives after God, and we are safe in the midst of a difficult life because of what Christ has made us and because of who God is. So if we're safe in Christ, then we are safe to live risky lives for the sake of the gospel in this life. If you truly believe you are safe in Christ, we are safe to risk. Jamelia said, He is no fool that gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So just a quick application question before we wrap up the last few verses and chapters. Is there anything you are holding on to that will not that you won't be able to hold on to for eternity? Is there anything you turn to for security that only promises temporal security? Things like a job, relationships, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, family, Financial security, reputation, those are just some of the biggies. There's all kinds of things that we turn to for security. Nothing will ever provide lasting security like the eternal love of God shown in Christ, given in Jesus. Again, be excited about Romans. We get to unpack that kind of stuff even more.
So chapters 9 through 11 focuses on the righteousness that is from God. Again, it comes by faith alone. Maybe you've heard this, these verses before, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, you can hear Paul speaking to the Jews who are wanting to cling to this ability to work, but he's saying, no, it is all through and because of Jesus. So surrender, be humbled, acknowledge it. How could there be any other way? It is by Jesus. And then finally, we come to the closing section, chapters 12 through 15. And this is this idea is this righteousness from God that we have been given enables us to respond to God in faithful service. So where do we serve God? Where do we serve Him? Chapter 12 says, within the church first, within the church. We see that just simply the daily kind of work of where we serve is within the church, using our spiritual gifts to build one another up, to become more like Christ and compelling each other to kingdom work. We also see as we continue that we serve God in the, we serve in the political and kind of civil kind of sphere kind of the, the, the community in which we live in at large, living out the gospel, the light of Christ within culture, not just tucked away in this bubble, but that we are out. We kind of use the terminology sometimes that we scatter and so that we can, that we, we gather so that we can scatter well for the glory of God. And then we see in chapters 14 and 15, um, and this is maybe one of the more difficult ones, and we see that we are to serve relationally to other Christians kind of maintaining unity, compelling to mission. We're to love one another and we're to give grace to each other. And as you know, with family, those are the hardest ones to give grace to. We're to build each other up. And then we see why serve. Coming back to like the, the first verses that lead us into this closing section, Romans 12, 1 and 2, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So why do we serve? Because of what we have experienced in Christ. Because of the mercies of God. Because of the love that we have. Our kids' memory verse right now that we do at the, at the dinner table every night is Ephesians 4.32. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is why we serve. It was, it's Megan Reedy's testimony from last week. It's, it's, it's that because of, of being in awe of what has been shown to us, where our sin and our wrath was taken and we were given the right standing of Jesus the Son, because of that. I had someone ask me, like, what's your motivation to evangelize one time? Like, I was, I was like, I just want people to know what I know. Like, it's just hopeless otherwise. That's why we serve. It's, it's God saying, all that I have done for you, just stay in tune to that. Be compelled by the love and grace of God. If you have tasted and seen I pray that you will be overtaken by the urgency to extend that to others. So the message of Paul's letter to the Romans is that we have a glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. We're no longer slaves to the law. We're no longer slaves to our works. Being left to our works is terrifying. Play it out. It's terrifying. So we're no longer slaves to fear. 
This letter puts forth in full view the beauty of the gospel of Jesus for you and me. And I pray it leads us to the urgency of the gospel mission through you and me. Let's pray. So God, turn our hearts to you. Lord, let us see our great deed. I pray if there is anyone in here that is, that is, that is not acknowledged that we are all sinners, has not acknowledged that we have created great offense against you, has not acknowledged that righteousness, right standing, redemption, salvation, hope, joy, peace comes through Christ alone. I pray just for your work to stir in them and for them to come to that place of glorious, difficult surrender. I pray for those of us who have called on Christ. Lord, stir in us the joy of our salvation. Lord, one, for personal peace, comfort, security, but also for urgency and courage in this world, that we would live as lights of Christ, calling all of mankind to you. Lord, as we have tasted and seen your goodness, let us be compelled to hold that out to those around us, starting with our families, with our friends, with our neighbors, our coworkers, to the ends of the earth. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.